Okay, so we are now beginning, and I believe we left off at chapter 12, verse 14. So I'm going to give you another chance, because it's been a whole week. If you've got any questions about chapter 12, and then we're going to dive into chapter 13, and then we're going to hopefully dive into 14, or at least continue to swim through, and in all likelihood not finish through 15 13, which is the cutoff point, and then wherever we do finish, we'll pick up next week, finish chapter 15, and then do chapter 16, which is an interesting chapter, uh, but has a lot of the greetings stuff in it, um, so short of looking at figures from a historical perspective, um, a lot of the normal stuff we're going to see in these chapters won't be in the 16th. With all of that, just... Chapter 12, it's not up there, I realize, but since we're still dealing with that, or chapter 13 through the first part of chapter 15, if you've got any questions, whether or not they are on my list, uh, words that you want to focus on, etc., that you want to make sure we touch on. Okay. Um, I wasn't sure about number seven. What issue? Now, which which one are we on? Since I'm covering two here. The chapter thirteen. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay. To do to do to do. Question seven regarding fourteen one to four. The issue. Okay? So we'll we'll cover that as we hit that passage. Any others? You found all the words well? And understand exactly why I put them there. Well, then I should be up here. Because I don't put them there just for fun. They are fun. But I don't put them there just for fun. Okay. So last week we stopped uh, with, cha- with verse 14 of chapter 12 and focused on the fact, that as we began this, that chapter 12 is a transition. And it's, it's classic Pauline... Uh, letter where Paul spends usually roughly half, in this case a little bit more than that, laying what frequently is referred to as a theological foundation. Um, I, I would quibble with the labels of theological and pragmatic as though they are mutually exclusive. Because I think there's a lot of theology in 12 and on, and there's a lot of pragmatic in the first 11 chapters. But it is true that Paul does tend to lay a foundation and then say, in essence, now, keep that in mind so here's how to live. Here's how to respond. And there's no question that the tone changed with chapter 12. One of the questions on the back of chapter 12, does anybody need that one, by the way? Chapter 12, um, the paper study guide. I didn't print it out. For chapter 12? Yeah. 
Okay. Here, there's about four or five of them. <laughs> so, one of the things that I did in order to emphasize that on is question nine. What? Oh, give me back my red letter. Well, that was for chapter 11. We already did that. We already did that. And not much of a treasure if you don't regret. So one of the things that I did to emphasize that is question nine. Now, how many of you guys actually did question nine? I realize not everybody has a chance to do all of it. Okay. This is what I found of various admonitions. Okay. And some of those I doubled up. So, I mean, because he said two things in the same phrase, um, and some of them I just, for space, frankly, I, I went ahead and list them individually, and then I started doubling some of them up to keep it all on one page. I'll admit that. This is just one chapter. So that gives you an idea of what Paul actually did with that particular passage. So, with all of that, he's talked about presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, and then went on to talk about how to do that, and continues in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless. Do not curse. And now, here's a little mechanism that Paul does a lot. Here's what I want you to do. Don't do this. So, he gives you the affirmation, but he also gives you the opposite of it in order to make clear what he's saying and illustrate by the negative. One form of defining is by defining by negation. What is this? Not this. See? So whatever blessing is, is not cursing. Okay? And by the way, cursing does not mean saying damn. Well, actually it, it does. But not the way we say it. It's not profanity. What does damn mean? Okay. Or at least you're asking the one who can to do that. Yes. It, it properly should have an apostrophe before the D. It is a contraction of the word condemn and simply change the vowel from an E to an A over the years. So to say damn it is to say condemn it. And that is a curse where you're, you're asking for something bad and negative to happen to this person. Paul says, don't do that. Instead, bless them. Okay? Do some, uh, bring something. Literally, it means speak well. The, the word is eblogite, uh, which we get our, Greek, or our English word eulogy from, to speak well. So speak well about them, speak something good into their lives instead of speaking something bad into their lives. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Okay? Be, be identifying with people. We were talking about this in staff meeting today that one of the phrases that we talk about a lot in ministry is, you know, we want to walk through life with you. We want to we help you. As you're experiencing this, we want to walk with you in this. And people find that just creepy and, and strange. The more we say that to the general public, the more people tend to avoid us. Because the, the secular world, the, the basic experience is, no, you don't. So if you're trying to get that close to me, you're wanting something. You're trying to take advantage of me for something. 
There's not that trust. This is why we can live in an area of 17 million people and the vast majority of them report feeling isolated because we just don't trust each other, which, by the way, is pretty typical of almost any megalopolis in the world. It's, it's just something that happens when you're crammed with that many people. And so we have to find ways not to tell people, we want to walk through this with you, but to simply walk up and start walking with them in a way that's acceptable to them. Don and I had a great example of this last night where we met a new neighbor, and we already knew from one of her children, because there's four children, and they're loving the neighborhood they're in because they're in a neighborhood in Orange County that was not near as nice, and they had to keep the kids inside or in the backyard because it just wasn't safe. And in our neighborhood, it's hot, but it's pretty safe. Lots of little kids, lots of people watching, and so the kids are just having a blast. They're out, and Mom's sitting in the front yard. We went over and introduced ourselves. And within a little while, talking about some major things going on in her life and offering to help with this and, more, you know, if you need this, let us do this. And Donna's stepping in because she's not working outside the home now and able to, to make a lot of commitments. And we walked away from that feeling very close with this woman. And I believe she felt the same thing. And I, I dare say she's fighting cancer and uh, talked about going to City of Hope for a second opinion. I said, yeah, I'm familiar with the place. She said, really? And I said, yeah, I lived there for a month last year. And it's interesting. I hadn't really put it that way before. <laughs> um, so we got to talking. And it wasn't, listen, I'm a minister. Let me help you, you know, because that's part of what creeps people out. It was, yeah, we're human, and we get a lot of what you're talking about, and you've got this thing you're fighting now, and right now, we're, we're kind of in a rest period for that. So what if we did this and this? And, and she was loving that and loving the fact that she's in a neighborhood where people might actually walk up and introduce themselves and before they walk away, offer this. This is weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. It's simply joining with them in their life and I don't know what their culture was like, if that was the norm, but I do know that across cultures it wasn't. Remember, the church was not just Gentile and Jew. It was Jew and, uh, and a whole lot of different types of Gentile, most of whom didn't trust each other culturally. The Romans had conquered the Greeks, so they didn't particularly have any love for each other, and so on and so forth. So to, to cross those barriers and simply... Do life with each other. That's what he's saying. All right. Be of the same mind toward one another. Notice he doesn't say with each other. You will find that in other contexts, but it's clarified. This is be of the same mind toward each other. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. The word lowly is the same word that's often translated humble. So, in other words, don't be getting above yourself. Don't think you're better than someone. So, go connect with people that are considered lowly. I mean, the label is still the label. We all know people that are considered lowly. We work with a bunch of them. And one of the things that's interesting is that 
some of us will, will go strike up conversations and others will just stay away from them. We have volunteers at Storehouse who are just scared to death of them until they get to know them. And then all of a sudden they realize, wait a minute, they're humans. You know, they're not another species. And that's what this is about. Well, I said it's translated humble in some places. Here it translates lowly because in this context it has to do with how other people see them. But you're, you're absolutely correct. There are many of them that have explained to me that we would be much better off if I simply turned my role over to them and let them take it from there. I have to admit I have resisted that so far. So if you feel I need to repent of that, let me know. Because it says, do not be wise in your own estimation. So I've got to be careful about this stuff. See? Don't think of yourself as wise. It's like, don't think of yourself as humble. Somebody told me um, December of 15, I was in an event, and I said something or did something, and, and someone turned around and said, you are one of the most humble people I've ever met. And it scared the daylights out of me. Because as soon as that person said that, I started thinking, oh, that's cool. And as soon as I thought, oh, that's cool, I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> Just shot that one. <laughs> so, you know, wisdom is the same thing. Right about the time we start thinking we're wise, we get hit with something that is going to prove otherwise. But we do have a source of wisdom. And one of the few promises that is universal in Scripture, and I say few compared to what a lot of pop theology tells us, God's promised all these things. No, he hasn't. Find it to me. Show me in, in Scripture, you know. But if any of you think he lacks wisdom, ask. It will be given to him without putting you down. God's not going to say, you stupid so-and-so. So, don't be wise in your own estimation. Uh, there's an old song dating back to my college years. that Do not be wise in your own eyes. I'm sorry, I, I just didn't have the melody in my head. But the rhyme was there. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Big word, anyone. You notice that there's no qualification there. This is literal. This is not figurative. Don't do that. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So respect and be at peace as much as it is on you. In other words, if somebody's got a problem with you, you can't necessarily do anything about that. But don't give them a reason. Right? It's like Peter's saying, if you're punished, that's no big deal. As long as you're not punished for actually doing something wrong. So, I mean, you, you can be grateful that you're allowed to suffer the way Jesus suffered if you're punished for something that's not wrong. But if you're punished for doing wrong, you did wrong, you know? So all the griping we do about the seating tickets, guess what? We were speeding. It's kind of hard to get past that, right? Okay. Never take your own revenge. 
No, it's interesting because he throws a word in here, and and I have to find myself wondering: was that just Paul's? Was that just him throwing it in, or was that a statement? Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, which gives you the idea that you're crowding God out when you try to avenge or revenge yourself. When you try to get back at somebody, it doesn't matter for what. It doesn't matter who. Because, again, the word never is broad. it's, It's universal. Don't do this. Don't try to get back at people. Don't try to pay them back. And, by the way, the word actually is related to the word justice. Because I've had people say to me, well, I'm not taking revenge. This is just justice. Yeah, that's what he's saying. That's not your role. You were not the judge, and you were not the one to carry out justice. That's God's thing. So leave room for God. Because vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So, contrary to that, but if your enemy is hungry... Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. May I suggest to you that harming him in some way by heaping coals on his head is not the motivation here. I've had people say this to me. Well, the best way to hurt him is to try to do something good for him. So I'm going to do that. (laughs) I think you're missing the point. (laughs) The idea is to give up this hurting thing. Because remember, by the way, another word for just and justice is fair and fairness. Does anybody here want God to be fair? No. I taught my kids this. I even, it's hilarious, when Josh came to visit me after I got out of the hospital, he says, Dad, I caught myself saying this right before I left. I was talking with the kids and one of the older boys said, but dad, that's just not fair. And he looked at him and he said, you want fair? Fair is we all get punished for everything we've ever done. Fair is we all go to hell. Now two of those kids are old enough that they've made commitments to Christ. And then he said to his wife, oh no, I've become my father. <laughs> because that was, that was one of my little lines. You don't want fair. None of us wants fair. We do not want justice, because justice will include us, right? So we don't keep burning coals in order to burn someone, but we just recognize that if you're trying to, in essence, fight injustice, love the person. That's your best weapon. That's what he's saying here, okay? All right. Do not be overcome by evil. The word, by the way... One of those little fun ones I should have thrown in just because it's fun. Uh, I think it's there. Where did it go? There's the accent mark. Sorry. Just tells you where to put the accent. Does anybody know what that means? The word. Say, say the word. And don't say it in English because it's wrong, and you know that. What? Nikkei. Anybody recognize that? Exactly. 
That's what the word means. That's where he got it. Nike is the Greek word for victory. So we made shoes that are going to give all of our athletes victory. So we'll call them Nike, which is an Americanization of Nike. Overcome. Except it's passive in the first use. Do not be overcome by evil. Kakon. Any wickedness, any ugliness. Interesting in the Greek culture that, that beauty was synonymous with goodness and ugliness synonymous with evil because they were so into that dualism. And, and let's face it, we tend to think that way even though it's kind of stupid. For those of you who are Trekkies, there is a very profound original Star Trek episode that takes that on and, and dispels that. But what he's saying is very simple. If there's any ugliness or any evil, moral ugliness, if you will, don't let that overcome you. Don't let that take over. Now, what is the immediate context of that? What's he been talking about the last few sentences? Not thinking you're better. And then? Okay. And in between, serving them with kindness and not thinking you're better is this whole discussion that says, don't get even. Don't take revenge. Don't try to get back at people. Okay. Don't repay evil for evil. Same word. Because when you do that, you submit yourself to the evil, and the evil overcomes you. You may not think so. You may take the moral high ground and say, no, I'm just getting back and doing what he did to me, which, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus said not to do. I see, I mean, I'm sure you do too. I see this on Facebook all the time in discussions, whether it's about politics or about interpersonal things or international things. It's, no, we're just doing what they did to us. Yeah. Read this. Now, I don't expect the world to get that. I expect the world to say this is stupid, and they do. But we cannot say that, folks, because when we do, we let evil overcome us. Evil wins in our life. But instead, overcome evil with good. The opposite. We have good. We can do good. And that's the point of, you know, if your enemy's hungry, give them food. Do good for the people who would do anything to you other than good, and then you're being Christ-like. Because that is precisely what Jesus did. I mean, that's the description of his whole life. Now he moves on, and we're in chapter 13. And I asked for questions and got only 14, so... I'm assuming we're, we're just cruising, right? Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. How many of you love that one? I asked for passages that you thought maybe should be uh, memorized with this. And this is one that, for me, we really should. Um, I've heard all sorts of fun stories about this, but the bottom line is Christians are told to be in subjection to the government, 
to submit to. Same word, be in subjection, submit to the government. All right? We are not told to submit when we agree. I can remember a nasty gram being written to the elders of this church a few years back. And when I responded to the person who did, I will give credit, actually sign it, um, and responded with a passage out of Hebrews that says we're to submit to the elders, the response was, but I don't like what they're doing. And I thought, well, that makes all the difference, doesn't it? Because it says right here, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities unless you don't like what they're doing. Who were the governing authorities? The Romans. Romans. You guys know what the Romans were like? Yeah. They really were. For a number of different reasons. One of them was at least Hitler was consistent. These guys were killing each other off at the rate of one or two a year. An emperor. I mean, an emperor was a bad job to have. Lifespan was just not very long. This was one of the most tumultuous times in the history of the Roman Empire. And one of the reasons is these people were nuts. I mean, they were just crazy people. They were doing some very weird, bizarre things. And Paul says, be in subjection to them. You think Paul would have said that if his life depended on it? Yep, trick question. Yeah. What happened to Paul? Yeah. About ten years after this, depending on how you date the letter, no more than that probably, uh, Paul found himself not only in prison, but this time they were serious. He'd been in prison before and they didn't care because he was the one that said, I appeal to Rome. They were going to let him go. And so they just let him hang around for a few years and finally got rid of him and sent him on his way. But when Nero picked up the persecution, Nero is about ten years after this is written, things aren't serious. And the guy who said be in subjection to all the governing authorities, the same guy remained so, didn't run from them, didn't hide from them, and did not argue with them, but maintained his faith. And because he was a Roman citizen, the result of that was, instead of being crucified, he had his head cut off. Which, by the way, was a very big blessing <laughs> compared to crucifixion. I mean, fast and kind of hard to tell how painless it is, because, you know, you don't get to interview those people afterwards. But um, compared to crucifixion, pretty obviously better. And he stayed with it. So we're talking pretty serious discussion here. And there is no government that has ever existed in this country that comes close to the evil of the Roman government. It just doesn't. And I'm not a fan of the current government. I wasn't a fan of the last one. It doesn't matter. No one's asking anybody to be a fan. Right? It tells us to be in subjection. Yes. There's a principle that comes out of Acts where Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin because the government is not just national. It goes all the way down, in our case, to the elders of the church. And Hebrews makes that very clear. For them, it would have been either the synagogue or they were in Jerusalem at the time, which meant the Sanhedrin, 
the priesthood, and they were brought before the Sanhedrin, and they were commanded, do not proclaim this name anymore, because they were telling people that Jesus is the Messiah. And, they, and the Sanhedrin just said, don't do it. And Peter's response was, choose for yourself, do we obey God or man? Because God had commanded them to do that. Now they're being commanded to do the opposite. But we've got to be pretty careful here because I see a lot of places where people say, well, that's against my faith. And I say, okay, show me in Scripture where it says do or don't do whatever you're objecting to. And they can't. So if they, if they can't, then where's God commanded you to do this? Or not. See? Unless we're, kind of, we're, we're claiming special revelation from God that he has clearly spoken to us and said, don't do that, in which case I don't know how to argue with that. If you really believe God said that, then obey it. But unless we're doing that, we are to obey. How likely is it that that's going to happen? Very unlikely here. <laughs> I think it's getting likelier and likelier. I'm not sure I will see it, but I'm pretty positive my grandkids will. If things continue in the direction they're going in this country, I don't think there's any doubt in the world they will. And so they're going to they're going to find themselves very unpopular, and they're going to have to make decisions like this. Where no, I will obey up to this. I won't do that, but I'll, I'll obey everything else. And that's hard to do because the tendency is to say, well, you said that, so now the whole thing's out. No. Peter and John didn't say that. They didn't, they didn't say to the Sanhedrin, you now have no power over us, no authority over us whatsoever. Paul himself, after he mildly cussed out, he didn't profanely cuss out, he, you know, it, wasn't, it wasn't a, a dam, <laughs> but it was something about a whitewashed wall or something like that. Anyway, um, he got slapped by someone, and he tore into him. And then someone said, that's how you talk to the high priest? Did anybody remember what Paul did? They had falsely accused him. They had mob arrested him, and they were trying to kill him. And he turned around and said, I'm sorry. Because you will not say that about God's anointed. Quoted a passage of scripture. So, Paul was pretty, pretty impressed with this obedience and subjection thing. And he disobeyed. Nero said, I want you to sacrifice to me. That was the test. This offer of sacrifice, burn a little incense on the altar of the emperor, and you're good. Any Christian who would do that was released. But of course a real Christian couldn't do that. They disobeyed. But they'd obey everything else. So now in our situation, we've got lots of laws that we don't like. Not one of them does it say here, we get to disobey. It's not there. In fact, it's not just a matter of obedience. Being in subjection is more than that. This is the word. <clears throat> we were talking military earlier. Um, 
some of us grew up in enlisted men's homes. My father was a lifer. And so, I mean, that's, I didn't have a subculture that was racial. I didn't have a subculture that was geographic. I had a subculture that was Air Force. And it was there, it literally was the subculture I grew up in. And it wasn't just Air Force, it was enlisted. Because I can remember my father, a man was 20 years in, and the highest rank he could get as an E9, having to say yes sir, no sir, and salute a kid who was not much older than me with brown bars. They called them brown bars, in fact. <laughs> fresh out of school, fresh commission, but he's an officer. This word is the word that was used of the rank and file submitting to the officer corps in the military. It was used in the Greek for that. And it wasn't just, okay, I'll do this. It was, you will respect it, and you will respect it as representative of an order that was put in place. Now, who put it in place? For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That does not mean, contrary to some people, that whoever in a democracy, for example, is elected, is the person God wanted elected, that God engineered that. Not what it's saying. saying the position, the authority, is granted. It's not that a certain emperor was put in place by God. It's that the structure of the government was granted by God, the authority. And it's even going to tell us why. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Why? For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good. You'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. What's the word minister there? Okay, what's the word servant there? Don't say minister. Okay. Are you sure? word you're talking about. It's the word we get liturgy from. Remember we talked about the fact that this is explicitly describing someone serving God. And to be fair, a God. Because it would have described someone serving Apollos in the temple. So the service, whatever the service looked like, is service done for God. The living sacrifice. Okay? But then there's this word comes into English like this. Diakonos. What? Yeah. We have anglicized and then Americanized it to deacon. Okay? Yeah, in verse 4. I didn't say it was part of what I asked. And by the way, there's a third word that I did ask you for that we haven't come up to yet. It means something even different. 
Yeah. Okay, in, in the question, but not the word. Yeah. Now, this word is the word used to describe someone who is a servant, but also someone, it is actually an office. So in the early church, there were the elders who had the authority of oversight and shepherding, um, and they were given that authority by God himself. But they couldn't do everything in the church that needed to be done and still do the primary ministry that they were supposed to do. So they found others who were spiritually qualified. Look in the First Timothy and Titus, and you'll see lists of qualifications for both groups. And they would delegate authority to them. The word diaconus, a servant, comes into Old English as a minister. Okay? So ministry. But it is, it is a, a, a servant who is given certain authority. Now it might be authority to go clean up the garbage, or it might be authority to oversee all the finances. You know, something the world sees as really important or something the world sees as nothing. It doesn't matter. It's not about the world. But it's the authority given from God, ultimately. Even through the elders, it's still from God. That, by the way, is why my title is not pastor or senior pastor. Those are inaccurate titles, biblically. My title is senior minister because I am delegated the oversight of service of ministry in the church. So I am a servant. That makes sense? But a servant with the authority to do what I've been told to do. Yeah. What's, what's wrong with that translation? No, I said pastor is an incorrect term for senior minister. Yeah. No, pastor simply means shepherd. Yeah. No. Exactly. Neither is pastor. Well, or even shepherd, because what did you say? Fuck. Did you hear it? Did you hear the difference? Well, and, no, there was an S on what he said. Pastors. There is no such thing as an individual pastor in the Bible as one shepherd over a church. Doesn't exist, and didn't, by the way, for roughly another hundred years. This is very clear in church history. Nobody argues with this. The idea, it was called the monarchical bishop when it first came around, or bishop is an, old, is an anglicization of uh, episcopals for overseer. And overseer, shepherd, elder. They're used synonymously in Scripture. There's a group of people who were those things, always functioning as a group, always, never, one running everything. Because when you see that, what you're seeing is a Western industrial model imposed on the church. And it, it can have a disastrous results. Okay. All right, I'm going to go on. The point being here, it is God who gave them, who delegated the authority to do what they're doing. 
So if they're not doing it, who are they responsible to? God. Now, we are in a role in a democracy where we can even act on that by saying, I don't like the job being done, so I'm going to vote for somebody different next time. No problem. But what we can't do if we're Christian, if we're being faithful, faithful, is fail to pray for and support that person and submit to that person. And there's a line, I mean, again, <laughs> this, this could be written only for our times. It is so apropos. And we've got to back ourselves off from being sucked into the world's conflicts here. Because it's not us. Our job is to be ambassadors for our king. And when we get sucked into the world's conflicts by ignoring this, it's like an ambassador coming to a foreign country who has a king and saying to the king, I don't like the way you're running things. I don't want you to be king. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to align over here with the people who are trying to get you ousted and then telling the rest of the world, these are the ones who should be listened to. Let's get rid of the king. How effective can that person be as an ambassador? He's destroyed and would be immediately recalled. We are ambassadors. So we need to be careful not to destroy our effectiveness because that's the reason God left us here. For rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior. I'm rereading some to start over. But for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good and you will have praise from the same. For it is it, the authority, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, we can debate whether we like, for example, the death penalty or not. I have severe concerns about the death penalty in this country. I wrote them out in essay form, and some bozos attorneys still put me on the jury for a capital case. Like, how can you do that after what I said? But that doesn't take away the fact that biblically, they're given, quote, the sword, and yes, that translates to the gun, for a reason. They have the authority to use it. That does not mean that whatever they do is right or whatever they do is good. It does not mean we should say it's right or good and not speak truth when it's not. What it means is we're not the ones they need to be aware, they need to be afraid of. Because when God gives you that kind of authority, you're held to a higher standard. Look all through the Psalms and the Proverbs and you will see what happens to the kings and the judges who misuse the authority God gives them. This is not something I would wish on them. So they should not do that, obviously. But not because I'm going to judge them. Because God's going to. And believe me, they should be far more afraid of him than they are of me. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. He just called 
I'm trying to remember the, the history right. If I'm not right, I'm very close to it. He just called Caligula a servant of God. Do you guys remember the name Caligula? Even if you don't know who he is, I guarantee you, nobody here would name your kid that. Because it's, it's, it's almost like Hitler. It's synonymous with, with crazy evil. And, and that's who he's talking about. He was literally in office right around this time. Claudia, Claudius, who was actually very sane compared to the rest of them, but who was ruthless. I mean, you do not want that guy down on you. But servants of God, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear, which by the way is uh, phobos, it means fear, respect, honor, not the same as timos, which is the one that's translated honor here. But it doesn't just mean be terrified of them because they're nuts. It means reverence them because even in their evil, and they'll answer for that, but they'll answer that to the, for that to God because he's the one whose authority they wield. That's Phobos. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry, where are you? See, I have to scroll. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers and servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Um, I, the, I believe the antecedent of that is the diaconate. The, the, the task they are given uh, delegated authority to accomplish, which is order uh, for the society, safety for the society, rewarding good and punishing evil. Yeah, yeah. And again, th this is the beauty of what he's saying because Paul's not stupid for Pete's sake. He knows. I mean, he wasn't reading this in history books. He was living through this. The purpose of their office is to represent God and bring order and peace and reward those who are doing good and on God's behalf punish or discipline those who are not. And so to the extent they're doing that, they are fulfilling this office given to them by God. To the extent that they're not, they're disobeying God. Which again, isn't ours to judge. It's simply a recognition they will be judged and it will not be a pleasant thing for them. Yes, sir. I suppose a case could be made for that because certainly there was a delegated authority to humanity for oversight of the planet, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And, in a sense, removed the uh, commission he was given. Certainly removed the ability to, to complete the commission because now he will scratch out from the dirt by the sweat of his brow. And there wasn't any of that going on before. God was standing 
Yes. Yes, exactly. 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 Including the Romans and including the American government. Okay. Now, in verse 8, he now says something else that is often quoted. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. No, we, we owe one another love. I don't think that's the part anybody argues with. Right? We're supposed to love one another. There are many who quote this as, see... Credit cards are evil. <laughs> Debt is bad. All right. I'm not saying credit cards are a great idea, mind you. I actually taught a Dave Ramsey class last summer. Um, and even agreed with significant part of what he said. Not all, but significant part. But this isn't talking about that, folks. So we just read verse 7. Okay. And verse 7 says, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. In other words, don't, don't let any of those, those debts be unpaid. What debts? What's he talking about? Taxes is one of them, but not the only one. Honor? Respect? Ovals, fear, reverence. We owe this, literally owe this, not because of them, but because of God. Okay? Yeah. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this isn't a uh, practice that we are habitually doing. This is, you owe a tax on that. Right? And remember Jesus' own words. Well, this, what? Yeah. Whose image is this? It's Jesus. Okay, give it to him. Jesus didn't have any heartburn over taxes. Okay? He did. And not always, I suspect, from a fish. Although, that one, by the way, was the temple, if you remember. That was a little different. Okay. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet... And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, love your neighbor as yourself. All of this coming from you know, the one who owes love to the other and thereby fulfills the law. Which, by the way, is almost a direct quote from Jesus himself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. So, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Which, which is a statement, interestingly enough, about the law, that the law is all about not doing wrong. So, love, you don't have to worry about all the, all the other stuff, because there it'll be. Okay? Now, I'm not sure that always works with the intricacies of the American codes, but I guarantee you it comes pretty close. If you truly love people and act in love, most of the time, you don't have to worry about the law. Now, we are dealing in a time where some things are beginning to get a bit bizarre. And I predict, once again, not necessarily in my lifetime, depends on how long, but almost certainly in my grandkids, and I suspect in my kids' lifetimes, there will be laws that will be very hard for us to keep. Because in keeping them, we will 
risk being disobedient to God. America is right now moving that direction. Will it continue? Don't know. Almost don't care. I do care, but almost don't. It's not for the reason that we're told we should care, because it's not about America being great, because it's not about America. It's about us being faithful. That's why I care, because we need to be faithful. Okay. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Salvation is nearer to us than when we believed? I thought we were saved when we believed. That's what the evangelists say. Well, some of them. So what's that about? Okay, yeah. Salvation is a big word. It includes, for example, not dying. I'm pretty sure I'm going to. If Jesus doesn't come back first, I'm totally sure I'm going to. And I'm good with him coming back first, by the way. I have put in my request. But if he doesn't, I'm not saved yet. At least not in the full sense. See? But when I am resurrected, and when I stand before God and he says, you're forgiven, now salvation has come. Okay? And it says it is nearer than when we believed. Believed is the first time. Now, we're getting closer and closer and closer. And we're going to keep getting closer because one of two things is going to happen. We're either going to die, and then as far as we are concerned, I've got my own theory on how it happens, but the Bible doesn't spell it out. The next thing we're going to know is we're there. We're in judgment. And the judgment for us is the judgment of a father saying, I forgive you. It's not a judgment to be... I don't look forward to it, by the way. If there's any enumeration of my sin whatsoever, I don't look forward to having to admit to that before God. If for no other reason than... I, I don't want to... I want... You did good. I don't want... Well, that was dumb, but... I forgive you. But I don't fear it, because I forgive you. Right? And the only other thing that might happen before that is Jesus coming back first. So one way or the other, it's all coming to that, and that's when salvation will be fully realized. Paul talks about this throughout his letters. He sees salvation not as it happened at a point in time, but as a process that will be fully realized. That's why he talks about hope that is not realized. Why isn't it realized? Because I'm still in this body. I'm still dealing with the curse. And it's not until that's not true anymore that that hope is fully realized. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that. So this, this isn't a Calvinist-Arminian discussion. That's nonsense. That's totally off base of what Scripture is talking about. This is simply a recognition that Jesus started to work, and he hasn't completed it and will not complete it until he comes back. This world is destroyed. The new creation comes, the resurrection is there. That's the completion. And that's a good thing. Because otherwise, we're stuck like this. And there's a lot of, by the way, read Jonathan, was it Swift? Jonathan Swift? Gulliver's Travels. Jonathan Swift? You guys didn't have to read that? It's actually an interesting book. It's a political commentary, but it's also a religious commentary. He takes on those who want eternal life and, in essence, lampoons them. But the reason he does is because he sees eternal life in terms of this world. 
and the problems of the body in this world and ignores the scriptural statements that no, it's a resurrected and recreated body that's eternal. Okay. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And by the way, what is the implication of what he just said? Yeah, and if he's saying that, what's the implication? Oh, I think he's saying they are going to make it if they do this, but that they're doing this. He's writing to the church. But he says, let us, by the way, that is uh, um, a sort of a formal way of translating the imperative. So it's not let us as, you know, come on, join me. It's command. We need to do this. We have to do this. And not in carousing and drunkenness. Implication. Some of you are still doing that. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Both very broad words. They encompass pretty much everything we deal with today. Some of you are still doing that. Not in strife and jealousy. You notice he puts strife and jealousy in the same company with those other things? Well, it is a warfare of a type, but I don't think this is classic spiritual warfare. This is called repentance. This is just basic, stop doing it. You know better than this. Yeah. We, th- those things will exist, but they don't have to exist in the people of God. And so what Paul's saying here, and remember, Paul's the one who said, it's not my business to judge those outside the church. He's, he's not talking about the, the world. Never did. He says, this is us. And that's the scary thing about what he's saying here. And, and it's true. I have the privilege, and it is, I, I, don't, I don't say that sarcastically, of knowing a lot about what happens in people's lives because they let me in. And, and that really is a privilege. It's, I just did an interview for a seminary student. What's, what's the biggest blessing in ministry? That was it for me. Because where else do you get to be a part of people's lives at such times in their lives? Where else do people let down the, the guards and be real and let you in? But because of that, I can tell you that on any given day when I'm standing on the platform teaching, I don't care if there's only 60 there or if there's two or 300 there, the reality is every one of those things <laughs> is represented right there. Some of them right now, the dissensions particularly, and pretty much all of them at least within the last 24 hours. I guarantee it. Every single week it's there. So, I mean, just like them, we, somewhere along the line we've got to say, guys, it's time to get serious here. You know, this is the time to actually live the way we said we're supposed to. Okay. Now, he does his Pauline thing again. Don't do this stuff. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its desires. The word lusts. Lust is a bad translation only because 
we tend to see lust as a sexual thing. But all of those things, the carousing, the drunkenness, the dissensions, you can desire all of that. And, and anything else. You can desire money. You can desire power. You know. So, lust of the flesh, or yeah, you know, the flesh in regard to its lust, it, this isn't just sex. <laughs> if it was only sex, honestly, it would be a whole lot easier to deal with. This is everything. And what Paul is saying is, no, that's not what we're called to do. And he's not stupid. He understands how hard that is because he lives it. Remember chapter 7? The things I want to do, I don't do. The very things I don't want to do, that's what I do. What a wretch. Okay? So when Paul is calling them to this standard, I think he's calling himself there too. I don't see this proud apostle who thinks he's arrived. Not, not after writing what he's written earlier in this letter. But rather a guy who's walking alongside these people and saying, guys, we can't keep doing this. We've got to get serious. All right. Chapter 14. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. I love that. It's another one of those that I memorized that about 20 years ago. I, I'm just rereading it. I've read this literally probably 50 times and never, ever, ever saw that. I don't know why, but all of a sudden it was like neon lights. Except the one who's weak in faith. What does weak in faith mean? By, by Paul, in context. Pardon? Needy in what way? Okay. But in the context, he's zeroing on a particular aspect of faith. Is it when they're new to the faith? Well, some of them are new, but some of them are not. Okay. Let me read on, because, of course, whenever I ask a question like that, the answer is almost always about to be shown. Except the one who is weak in faith. Now, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. This is not, yes, we want you all to be here, and now I'm going to tell you how wrong you are, you know. And it's about opinions. I'm not talking about God's word. I'm talking about opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. Yes, he just called vegetarians weak. Well, maybe not. Maybe that's not exactly what he's saying. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who doesn't eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, Paul's labeling a certain group of people weak. Now, to understand it, you have to understand what this meat and vegetable thing is about. And to understand that, you have to know the history here, and we get a lot of, of understanding of that by going to another one of Paul's letters. Um, remember, basic principle of understanding Scripture, or any other literature for that matter, is you let the whole interpret the part. So if you're reading just this small section, it may assume knowledge of something that isn't right there. But you may find that knowledge in another place. For example, 1 Corinthians 7 and 8. I think 8 mostly. Where Paul talks about meat sacrificed to idols. 
Now remember, they lived in a place, in a city. People in the city were craftsmen, tradesmen. They did not have flocks, herds, an easy meat source. They lived in the city. You couldn't do that in the city. They may have had, like, chickens or something, but uh, ready meat, no. So what they did is they traded, as we do, the use of their skills. They got money, and then they went to the local butcher shop. Now, who's the local butcher? The local butcher is the guy who works for the temple, because if you're going to butcher an animal, you might as well get some value out of it with, you know? Remember, we're talking pagans here. Not, this is not about Jerusalem and the temple. This is about the pagans. And so I've got a bull that I'm going to butcher. He got just a little bit too aggressive, and I said, okay, I'm going to eat you. So I'm going to take that bull, but I'm not just going to butcher it and sell it. No, I'm going to present it to Apollos and get Apollos on my side for whatever's going on in my life. And by the way, get some value out of it as well. And all likelihood, the value I'm going to get is I'm going to get a portion of it to eat. Then the priests of the temple are going to sell it. The priests are the butchers. And they're going to sell it in a temple shop. Just out there in the market. But everybody knows, where'd that come from? That temple. Where'd that come from? That temple. Almost everything out there came from one. So if you're going to eat meat, you're going to eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. Now, if you're a former worshiper of Apollos, and you have come to Jesus, and now you're presented with what you used to do as an act of worship, eating a steak was like, I'm doing this as part of my worship, because this is uh, part of a sacrifice to Apollos. You probably had a hang-up with that. A lot of them did. Paul, who is a Jew, who is monotheistic, who understands that Apollos didn't exist, isn't bothered by it in the least. Why? Because Apollos doesn't exist. They thought they were doing that, but what they were really doing is going through nonsense, and it's meat. (laughs) And I like meat. So Paul says in Corinthians, I'm going to eat meat. Unless, unless, it causes my brother to stumble. So, if eating meat is a problem, not because someone says, well, that's just offensive to me. We had a guy visit a, a while back, and it's like every other word was, well, that's offensive to me. And I said, no, you're really easily offended. Oh, that was offensive to him, too. <laughs> I got myself on his bad list real quick. He went on our website, or on our uh, Facebook site, and started, and, and I, I swear he used that phrase. <laughs> the pastor, it's his term, not mine. The pastor is very offensive. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> so it, it's not about somebody like that. It's about somebody who's looking at this saying, Good night. What are you doing? You're worshiping Apollos. Or worse yet, who says, You're worshiping Apollos. I guess that's okay and then does it himself, even though he doubts that it's okay and believes in his heart that it's not. So now, the weaker brother, he's the guy who doesn't understand. He's weak in his faith and his understanding of truth. 
Okay? But the weaker brother could be hurt by my lack of weakness. Because I, I know the truth. That's what Paul's saying. And he did. And both here and in Corinthians, he uses this phrase about someone for whom Jesus died. And it's beautiful. Because that's how he saw. He's talking about people by definition whom he's saying are wrong. <laughs> You're wrong. But I will go by what you're saying if not going by what you're saying will cause you to stumble in your face. Now, of course, we have to make that judgment then. Is it this other guy who's just offended at everything and trying to manipulate people that way? Or it's truly causing someone to stumble in their face? But if it is, this is somebody for whom Jesus died. And we don't do that. Well, and he may or may not ever come to a point of having a good stake. But that's not what it's about. You know, what it's about is making sure that he's solid in his faith, and then the rest of that becomes a non-issue. So again, verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not is not to judge the one who eats. God has accepted him. In other words, God accepts us. That doesn't say God accepts everybody, by the way. It doesn't say God accepts an unrepentant sinner who says to God, I will be my own Lord, so stick it. It's talking about a person who simply doesn't understand and is doing everything he can to be faithful to God, but doesn't understand. And so he's backing away from something. And Paul says, God accepts him. See, Paul's not saying God accepts the other guy because Paul is the other guy. That's, an, that's already assumed. Paul's not going to say, well, I'm, I'm hoping God accepts me too. No, he's saying, I'm not judging that guy. God accepts him, so who in the world am I to judge him? Even though he's wrong. That's fascinating. Because we, we, we're so into being right. And I'll admit, I, I can be there. That's not the basis of judgment. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. The days were part of patterns of worship, both in Judaism and in the pagan religions. And you'll see that in various denominational structures. Some of them very big on high days. I, I get a kick out of it because I've been in ministry for a long time, and I get asked by people, well, what's such and such day about? And I look at them like, what in the world are you talking about? Oh, what I know, because it's, it's some Roman Catholic thing or an Orthodox thing that I've never practiced and never will. So, you know, even today we have this same kind of a, of a difference. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat. And give thanks to God. In other words, whichever way we're going, if we're giving thanks to God, we're doing okay. As long as we're not sinning. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. This is, this is an amazing thing. This is talking to a group of people who are probably majority slaves. But this is talking about belonging to someone as a blessing as a privilege, 
not as, well, we're stuck, we belong to this guy, you know. So we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again? I love the way he just, it's like he's verbally pointing all of this out. But you, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue give praise to God. So then each one of us will give account of himself to God. That's the part I'm not jazzed about. And again, not, not because honestly I'm afraid of the judgment. Because even if I, even if I was judged, what have I got to gripe about? <laughs> We're back to that whole thing about the speeding, you know? If I get the ticket, guess what? I deserve the ticket. Because I was speeding. There's only one time I didn't deserve it, and I was speeding, but he was claiming I sped like 10 miles above what I was. And I knew he wasn't using his gun because I was driving a car that couldn't go that fast. <laughs> and I told him. And he just looked at me, and he drove a line through it and put it 10 miles left and handed me the ticket. <laughs> okay. I was going that. <laughs> I had maxed that little Volkswagen out. But, you know, when we stand before God, we're not going to be trying to talk him out of things or judge or justify ourselves. You know, we do that now because we're shielded from the magnitude of God. I've said this before. When we stand before God, we're not standing. <laughs> we stand before God. It's like, hit the dirt. <laughs> like, you know? And if he decides to destroy me, he's right. i got no rights. But he's promised he won't do that. So I'm not worried about that. But I want him to say I did well. I want that more than anything. And that's where Paul is, I think. I can feel what Paul is doing. Paul knew exactly what kind of a sinner he was. He wasn't going to argue about that. But now he's trying to serve God. And he wants God to say, you've been faithful. And he's going to work hard for that. Okay. I'm not sure shame is the issue. It's not, it's not shame. I don't think he's going to shame me. I, he's already forgiven me. He died for me. I don't think that's the issue either. Honestly, I don't. I, when I stand before God and hit the dirt, it's not, because, it's not out of shame. It's out of, wow, this is God. I, yeah, I, I, I don't want to be disqualified from you did good. Oh, from you did good. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, is the old quote. Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. It's not a badge. It's not a, a, a trophy to carry around. No, it's, it's Jesus himself saying, Randy, I know. I don't have to justify all the things I've done wrong and why, because he knows better than I do. I'm not going to tell you I even know that I deserve that comment. Because with Paul, I have to say, I don't even judge myself. I'm, I'm not pretending that I'm good enough or have a clear enough view to even do that. I just know I want to hear it. And so if there is anything I can do to be faithful to the Lord, 
I want to do that. I don't even know what that means all the time, honestly. I've spent the last two years trying to figure that out, piece by piece. Well, I think that's what happens, but that's not why I do that. I don't think that's why Paul's doing it. He's calling people who are living in sin to repent. But those who are not, it's not about to keep them from sinning. If they're, if they're trying to serve the Lord, if they're loving, they're not going to do that. Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and that's, a, I think, a byproduct. But, but like I said, for me, I mean, I'm trying not to live in the past, to be honest. I'll, I'll just be very open with you guys. Um, I think everybody here knows what I've been through in the last two years. Um, my life is not defined by that, and I'm working very hard at that becoming reality because I still deal with it every day. But I've learned some things in that process. One of them is I really didn't fear death, and I don't. I came very close. I was begging for it, honestly. The dying part, that was a drag. I wanted to get done with that. But the death part, no. Being before God, being with God, that's nothing but joy. But also, during that, everything in me, everything in me, pushed harder and harder and harder for that goal. To stand before and see Jesus just smile and say, Randy, you've done good. And by done good, he doesn't mean I did great or I deserve anything in particular. Because I know better than that. But just to hear him say something encouraging like that, it's not, it's not that I fear the negation of that. It's that I want that so bad. I hear that from Paul. I get it. I totally get it. And when I was able to come back into ministry, I'll be honest with you, I'm scared to death of sin. I, don't, I can't even watch a lot of the TV programs that we used to have. I can't read a lot of newspaper articles that I used to read. And it's part of I mean, there's a psychological term for it, I'm sure. I'm very sure, because I know what it is. But I'm not sure it's a bad thing. But that's not what motivates my life. That fear is there, and I have to deal with it, but that's not what motivates me. What motivates me is, I want to see Jesus smile when he sees me. And I want just a little bit of that smile to be. You really tried, didn't you? You know? I feel like it's, it's like my granddaughter playing lacrosse. Bella, I'm sorry if you're listening ever. Um, we watched her play a lacrosse tournament. Now, my granddaughter has been out for a month and a half with a broken arm. And the first time she gets to play is, is the city tournament. <laughs> and she wasn't on top of her game. She was out there giving it whatever she had. All day in the heat. And I mean all day. And so there were times when she just didn't do very well, frankly. But none of us was yelling at her about that. It was just, you know, impressed that, you know, you really did try. I'd like to hear that. And I, I hear this in, in everything Paul's saying. Because Paul's keenly aware that all of us are nearer to that salvation than when we believed. And frankly, looking forward to it. Paul is. I suspect a lot of his readers aren't. But he is. 
Okay, so we're going to stop and pick up with 14.13. We will, I'm going to take a picture of this, come back to this. Okay. But next week we're going to go ahead and finish. And that's going to be easier than it looks because of the nature of a lot of Chapter 16. Pardon? Yeah, in fact, I'm going to try to have a schedule for, for you for next week. And if I don't have it next week, I should have it. But just in case I don't, I will email it to the email list for this class. So everybody in this class will get it. Okay? Don't drop that. Oh, and the final. What I wanted to do, but I just couldn't figure out a way to do it logistically, is to take a little time and have you guys have the study guide be you guys writing the study guide for the next one. But if I did that, then you'd be getting two at the same time. And that's where the logistical issue came in. There you go. This is the, the final, whoops. Yeah, 15, 15, 14 through 16, 27. Thank you. Okay, those of you listening, goodbye. See you next week.